you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. Have you missed me? I missed you. For 14 weeks, I was uber excited to bring you a fresh perspective on another facet of student-centered learning as you prepare and deliver interactive science lessons. It was bound to happen eventually, friends. I wasn't able to connect with you last week. In addition to what's felt like a particularly challenging startup to my school year, my kids brought home the first of this year's germs from school to infect me. The non-COVID kind of germ, but debilitating nonetheless. I hope today's message finds you, your family, and your school infection-free and off to a great start. When you first begin experimenting with student-centered learning strategies, you may be able to substitute single science lessons with activities you think of or activities you find online that provide scientific method practice and allow students to uncover concepts in place of whatever your typical classroom practices might entail. But when you make the commitment to do this for each and every lesson, you might want to consider how the change might impact the entire curriculum. More specifically, you may want to think about student readiness, classroom routines, and the time it might take to address those potential obstacles. If you're an avid listener of the podcast, you know that I'm a high school science teacher at a cyber charter school, and that the 11 years I've spent in that role at that school have hardly been easy. Generating and sustaining student engagement in the absence of nonverbal cues is beyond challenging. In an effort to continually prompt student responses, I asked a lot of questions that could be answered with familiar multiple choice type polling cues. I rarely asked open-ended questions, best answered verbally, 
because one, students in online school don't like to talk on the microphone. Oh, we are talking about teenagers here too, by the way, high school. They would legit rather pretend they aren't there, that they're actually not on the other side of the screen at all than respond when you call on them. And leaving it up to volunteers to respond provides for only the most confident and usually knowledgeable students to interact in a meaningful way. Two, significant portions of my classes have had documented behavioral IEPs related to anxiety, specifically prohibiting me from calling on them during class in response to a question during a lesson. With 30 plus students in each virtual classroom and only 50 minutes to present each lesson, the best way for me to have demonstrated my students' engagement was to collect the data representative of how many students even attempted to answer each question I posed. Naturally then, I posed a lot of questions throughout just to ensure, to ensure and monitor and assess engagement, just who is doing what, how often, and when. Most of my teaching peers, they're doing the same. So when I made the switch to delivering truly interactive science lessons that support student-centered learning in my chemistry classroom, I felt as discouraged by fear as I did invigorated by a change toward what I deeply believed was something better, something so much more meaningful and impactful to the lives of my students. You see, I did not believe my students would cooperate. I felt absolutely sure that they would revolt. After all, no other teacher at my school, to my knowledge, was challenging them with a daily activity for which they had to provide a written account of their experience. Also, since it was my experience that only about 60% of students regularly participated in the simple multiple choice polling activities, I couldn't imagine they would accept the challenges I had prepared for them. Finally, a large portion of my class list is typically new enrollments. Over the entire school year, probably 20% of the students on my combined rosters have transferred in from another school. I'd have little to no knowledge of what they were accustomed to doing prior to joining my classroom. Rather than allow these fears to overwhelm me to the point of preventing me from following through on the learning I had done to prepare for this change, I chose to plan for the worst and hope for the best. I guess it's instinctual for me, but it could also come from having parented children through their infant and toddler years. The first thing I leaned on was consistency. I knew that any effort I'd make to change the culture of my classroom had to start on day one and continue throughout each and every day. I can actually remember thinking, if I just keep the heat on and I don't let up, they'll begin to understand their responsibilities and they'll adapt. You see, I had also connected a participation score to the classroom work that they produced each day. I also happen to be a big believer in creating a culture of accountability. So if for no other reason, they'd participate to keep their grade up, right? That's what I thought. That's what I was planning for. 
And even then, I anticipated the lowest participation at the very beginning until they embraced what they were seeing each day and forfeited any protest to it. Well, that actually never really happened. That first year, and each year since, my students have willingly done the hard work of learning from that first week onward. But my message to you today is not to expect that, because it may not have gone that way. My instructional goals that year were vague, but in my head they were very specific. I wanted to collect artifacts of student learning. I never had artifacts before. I had never anything besides tests and lab reports to show anyone else what my students were working on. And even lab reports is a very loose term for what I was doing. I wanted to increase rigor. They needed to do more than just answer polling questions, multiple choice style throughout class time. And I wanted to foster a growth mindset among students in my classroom. These three goals and God, thank you, Jesus, were the guiding light for my lesson planning and delivery that first year. The first of those two goals were satisfied easily by incorporating a standards-based interactive learning experience into each lesson. This really dialed up the rigor with regard to how my students spent their class time, as well as how they thought through content. It also afforded me the opportunity to collect the work of each and every student, each and every day, in an at-a-glance kind of way. A growth mindset? How could my planning support that? I really was looking for student buy-in from the very beginning by expecting resistance. But I didn't feel like I could just jump right into the heavy of chemistry content at the same time as I unveiled what might feel to students like very different very challenging learning tasks. This very easily could have washed over them and felt like drowning. So the growth mindset piece was supremely important to me. I added in an introductory unit to my curriculum that I now call pervasive principles. Over my 10 years at the school where I currently work, Whether or not to use this introductory unit of study in our learning management system, which is written by our curriculum provider, was always a debatable topic. I was usually on the side of the debate that promoted removing it from our sequence of lessons entirely. One of the most important arguments for cutting it was that it included some concepts that wouldn't be taught in depth until partway through the second semester. Of specific concern were the more math and in unit-focused lessons related to dimensional analysis. We all, a team of anywhere from three to five chemistry teachers, we all knew that a single lesson or small series of lessons, no matter how they were taught, wouldn't support retention without reinforcement over months of time. So when I proposed resurrecting the introductory unit, it was a surprise to the other teachers on my team and was one they didn't embrace. I wouldn't teach it the way it was provided to us, though. I would teach the most foundational principles of chemistry, the study of matter, and the study of energy. Most lessons would facilitate vertical alignment from prior science courses 
to chemistry, while also supporting chemistry standards outlined for my state. This meant that students might feel relief in those first few weeks of chemistry class because the content was familiar. Conceptually, much of it could be considered review. However, every lesson now incorporated the science as inquiry standards that are outlined in my state. These include comparing and contrasting scientific theories, knowing that both direct and indirect observations are used by scientists to study the natural world and the universe. Identify questions and concepts that guide scientific investigations. Formulate and revise explanations and models using logic and evidence. Recognize and analyze alternative explanations and models. These standards are typically satisfied by, by what we've come to know as, quote, lab activities that might happen once a week in a traditional classroom or once every six-day cycle, whatever your pattern is in school. At my school, we incorporated one each unit, which worked out to a once-a-month kind of frequency. The lessons I deliver now and started then, about two years ago, over the first month, do encompass the fundamentals of the entire year of chemistry. As I ensured, both the study of matter and the study of energy were included in this introductory unit. In sequential order, the lessons I teach at the start of the school year include why study chemistry in high school, the scientific method, basic terms in chemistry, the periodic table, Ooh, that one's how the periodic table is organized, more specifically. Physical and chemical properties, mass, volume, and density, states of matter and kinetic molecular theory, electrostatic attraction, temperature, direction of heat flow and changes of state, physical and chemical change, chemical reactions and equations, and laws of conservation. It's a series of 13 lessons. The average score on this unit test is usually in the low 80s. Students feel good about working with familiar content. They practice the scientific method along the way. And in delivering this content, I've created the ability to spiral back and connect to fundamentals throughout the remainder of the year during the review and preview element of each lesson I teach. For those chemistry teachers out there, I realize electrostatic attraction isn't a lesson that's ever taught outside of a bonding unit. But shouldn't it be? It's the foundation for nearly every phenomenon we study and discuss in chemistry. By the end of that first semester, it's my hope that students can explain the like-dissolves-like phenomenon, based entirely on opposite charges attracting. So to do that, they must have a solid understanding of electrostatic attraction outside the context of bonding. Remember, we're trying to get kids to uncover concepts. So they have to understand that very fundamental piece before they're applying it to other systems and recognizing it at work. Presenting it in the beginning and using it to reinforce all kinds of things like 
how the nuclei of atoms are held together with the opposing charges of quarks, how whole atoms are held together with the protons and the electrons, positive, negative, how bonding occurs, ionic, of course, and how substances can exist as solids, liquids, and gases with our intermolecular forces. It's supremely important if you're seeking for your students to uncover those concepts from learning experiences you create and deliver. I also use every lesson in this series to emphasize the need for focused, detailed observation, which will help them execute learning experiences I've planned for them as the content becomes more complex. It's my experience that students starting chemistry take a great deal of what they observe for granted, not realizing how important it all is to crafting a conclusion. Shout out to all my chemistry teacher friends out there. I know that you're still going to teach a wet lab component of your class. That's awesome. Teaching all your lessons using student-centered learning experiences will only enhance the learning value of their hands-on experiences and the meaning, the analysis you want to extract from those specific activities. In conjunction with this, I know you need to teach all about glassware, accuracy, precision, and significant figures. So do I, per the standards, but it's not something I focus on heavily because the lack of hands-on experiences I can offer them won't necessitate their continued use and mastery. And this is exactly what I'm trying to highlight for you in today's episode. We each have a unique collection of students in a unique environment, with unique resources, and unique needs. It's okay to adjust your curriculum to meet those needs. That first year I worked this Pervasive Principles introductory unit back into my curriculum for the reasons I've discussed, I most definitely underestimated the time it would take. My chemistry teacher colleagues were through their entire first unit on the atom atomic structure, and I hadn't even begun yet. Time out. If, like me, you're not teaching alone, and you're in a school that requires all teachers of the same course, have the same test and the same pacing and the same schedule, all hope may not be lost. You might be sitting there thinking, man, I'm not able to diverge from my plan. I was accountable for delivering the same midterm, the same unit tests as the other chemistry teachers on staff. When I looked at the calendar, I knew I could never accomplish it in the way it had been planned out in years past as distinct topic-based lessons. But I spent some time really thinking about the standards and the content resources I was provided, and I was able to rework the entire schedule for the remainder of the year such that every standard was still addressed. This was accomplished by capitalizing on that foundational material I delivered in that introductory unit and through the design of interactive learning experiences that allowed students to discover more than one connected phenomena in a single meeting with me. For example, 
by delivering a lesson on physical and chemical properties at the very beginning of the year. I didn't have to incorporate a lesson about just metal materials and their properties and another lesson on just ionic substances and their properties and another lesson on covalent substances and their properties. Instead, I could create a single lesson that required students to compare and contrast the physical and chemical properties of all three types of substances because students were already very adept at recognizing them through experience. Compare and contrast is also a high-level depth of knowledge skill, increased rigor compared to the series that I would be separately discussing them. So what I'm talking about is basically not teaching your textbook. That's what the chemistry teaching staff was and is doing at my school. We're provided digital curricular resources and we just taught them. I recall at the time I was hired, in fact, thinking that the organization of the curriculum was so strange. And at that time, while I was far removed from high school chemistry, I had quite recently taught college level introductory chemistry and the whole sequence I was presented with was like totally lost on me. I've done it now for so many years though I can't even recall what was so different about it. Honestly, when I sat down with the resources and thought really intentionally about how to achieve the instructional goals I set for myself, which were long-term, of course intended to increase student achievement, I came up with something different. And it works for me, and it works for my students. I was able to establish routine while increasing rigor, collect meaningful artifacts of student learning, and foster growth mindset by increasing confidence with change at the very beginning of our time together. By October, you'll find my classroom full of grace in both teaching and in learning. As with all things, though, there might always be some drawbacks, some challenges to overcome. Obviously, reworking an entire semester of unit and lesson content was challenging and will be for you. Because I work on a team of teachers at a time when my school has begun cataloging our course-specific curriculum and enforcing common assessments, my tests also needed to be revised to ensure that the same questions were being asked even if on entirely different tests. And then when we coordinate and try to compare that data, I need to know which question is where. That is truly a living nightmare. Writing initiatives have come down from our administration related to Common Core, and we're supposed to be aligned there too. All the teachers on a content team but we're not because my schedule is so far off the others. We can't share lesson plans because my lessons are so heavily connected to prior lessons, content, and skills that I can't just share with another teacher who's in a pinch. And when we meet to review data, I'm the oddball who's always presenting something different. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to be different. I know my choices are rooted solidly in sound pedagogy and research-based instructional strategies. 
but sometimes that knowledge isn't enough to settle my mind and feel nothing but confidence. I'm working all this out at my school on a proposal I've recently had to submit for which we'll collect assessment data and at a future date determine if it's a viable option to consider for long-term change across the board. Realistically, though, our assessment data, (coughs) mostly standardized test data, won't capture the real-life scientific method skills that students will gain from working with this model. What I've described to you today is just one of the several considerations you may want to make when thinking of making the switch to student-centered learning for your science classroom. While I firmly believe an effective interactive science lesson plan is all you need to create scientific method masters in your classroom, planning for potential obstacles could go a long way to preventing you from throwing in the towel prematurely and costing your students a far from forgetful experience in science. Stay tuned for the next installment in this series when I discuss technology's role in deploying a lab in every lesson. Until then, you can download the entire guide I've created for you to accompany this particular podcast series. Just visit www.labineverylesson.com slash considerations, C-O-N-S-I-D-E-R-A-T-I-O-N-S. Make today a great day, and I'll talk to you again soon.